You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 195, the court-martials of Generals Lee, St. Clair, and Schuyler. When the Second Continental Congress created the Continental Army in 1775, it appointed Charles Lee as the number three commander, behind only George Washington and Artemis Ward. General Ward had been in command of the New England Army prior to this. As a lieutenant colonel in the British regulars, and as someone who served as a general in other European armies, Charles Lee seemed to be the most experienced officer in the new Continental Army and many people thought he would be a better commander than George Washington. Lee certainly counted himself among that group. When the British captured General Lee in late 1776, many on both sides thought that the war was finished. The Americans had lost their only general with any real experience. The army, however, managed to struggle on. When Lee returned to the army after being exchanged in the spring of 1778, he returned to a much different army. The generals, who had only been militia commanders at the beginning of the war, by 1778 had nearly three years of combat experience. The soldiers had received training under General von Steuben at Valley Forge. They looked and felt much more like a professional army. Lee's time in British captivity was perhaps responsible for the fact that he did not appreciate the changes that had taken place. He was unwilling to concede the idea that perhaps he was not head and shoulders above all the other Continental officers. As we heard back in episode 188, Lee opposed Washington's wish to attack the British as they retreated from Philadelphia to New York in June of 1778. Washington, however, was not quite as starstruck as he once was by Lee's military experience and proceeded with the attack anyway. He put General Lafayette in command of the lead force and followed behind himself with the rest of the army. And at that point, not wanting to be left out of the action, Lee requested that he be given command of the advance force that he had refused to take earlier. Washington acceded to this request and General Lee led the army into an attack at Monmouth Courthouse in New Jersey. On the morning of June 28th, General Lee moved forward with his army to confront the British rear guard. Within hours, though, Lee and his army were in full retreat. General Washington was stunned to see his army running away from what had not even really become a battle yet. The usually imperturbable Washington was, well, perturbed. He angrily confronted Lee on the field. A stunned Lee said almost nothing. Washington asserted command of the field and battled the British Army for the rest of the day. When the fighting ended at Monmouth, Lee had to defend his actions. 
After a loss in battle, or even poor performance in a winning battle, it was not unusual for officers to face court-martial, or at least some sort of inquiry. Major General John Sullivan had recently faced a court-martial and been acquitted for his actions at Brandywine. In many cases, generals requested or even demanded a court-martial in order to dispel lingering doubts or derogatory gossip about their performance. That said, the consequences of a court-martial could be pretty serious. Congress had recently cashiered Major General Adam Stephen for his less-than-stellar performance at Germantown a few months earlier. Some articles of war even called for the death penalty. Although no Continental generals were executed during the war, Admiral John Bing of the British Navy faced a firing squad 20 years prior for his failing to do his utmost before the enemy at Menorca. Lee could have faced similar charges that carried the death penalty. Things, however, did not go that far for him. Lee actually did request court-martial, although I think that was in the heat of the moment. He probably regretted doing so thereafter. Rather than work out the matter with the commander, Lee chose to make the dispute into a contest with Washington to decide who was a better military commander. When the court convened, several weeks after the Battle of Monmouth, General Alexander, also known as Lord Sterling, served as the presiding officer of the court-martial. Sterling also was known to be a Washington loyalist. Sterling had been the first officer to alert Washington to the Conway Cabal and had helped him put down that attempt to replace him as commander-in-chief. Normally, then as now, a court-martial would consist of officers who were more senior than the accused. However, since George Washington was the only commander more senior to Lee, General Ward had previously retired, that was impossible. In fact, several brigadiers and even colonels sat on this court-martial. The prosecutor was an officer named John Lawrence, the same man who had ended General Adam Stevens's career at a court-martial a few months earlier. As was the norm, General Lee defended himself without counsel. The court considered three charges against Lee. First, disobeying orders to attack the enemy. Second, misbehavior before the enemy in making an unnecessary, disorderly, and shameful retreat. And third, disrespect to the commander-in-chief in two letters written after the battle. Lee defended himself reasonably well. The first charge, disobeying orders to attack, seemed to come from the idea that Washington had ordered this attack and that Lee was opposed. Nevertheless, Lee took command, but then failed to make any serious attack after advancing toward the enemy. As a legal charge against him, however, this really couldn't stand. First, Washington never gave Lee absolute orders to attack. As Washington always did, he left his field commander with discretion to use his best judgment based on the situation that he found in the field. As Lee put it, quote, to disobey discretionary orders is as absolutely impossible as to kill a dead man, end quote. In other words, discretionary orders permitted him to use his discretion. The second charge of making an unnecessary, disorderly, and shameful retreat came from the notion that Washington had come across men streaming away from the enemy and no one seemed to know what was happening. There was a rather disorderly retreat that day, but Lee probably was not responsible for it. General Charles Scott, 
who was in charge of the center of the Continental Line that day, seemed to think that Lee was retreating, when, in fact, Lee was advancing. Scott then ordered his men to retreat and convinced his superior of the field, General William Maxwell, to join his retreat. By the time Lee discovered that the center of his line was missing, he had no choice but to retreat himself or have his army captured by a superior force. The third charge, disrespect to the commander-in-chief, was probably the easiest to prove. First, Lee had been rather disrespectful to Washington almost since the beginning of the war. Lee was always disrespectful to all of his superior officers, even when he had served in the British Army. It was a common practice for officers to indicate they could do a better job than those above them. That was the path to promotion. But such criticism required a certain amount of subtlety and respect shown to their superiors while they were doing it, and Lee had a real problem with subtlety. Lee argued that the two disrespectful letters that he had sent to Washington after the battle were a response to the unfounded charges against him. He believed that he had a right to be indignant at the accusations and basically asked for some understanding at his temper tantrum. The trial took several weeks and had to be adjourned and restarted several times as the army moved. It concluded in mid-August with a finding that Lee was guilty on all three counts. The court-martial ordered that Lee be suspended from service for one year. Experts have noted that the one-year suspension is rather light given the charges. General Adam Stephen was cashiered for less only a few months earlier. And theoretically, these charges against Lee could have carried the death penalty. Many historians believe that the court found Lee guilty on all three charges, mostly out of loyalty to Washington, but that the punishment was really just for the third charge, disrespect of the commander. Since Washington was an interested party to the trial, he did not approve the finding himself. Instead, he forwarded the results to the Continental Congress for approval. A few months later, Congress upheld the conviction and the penalty. The matter was of great debate and delegates were divided, many opposed to Lee's conviction. But in the end, Congress opted to back Washington and Lee returned home to Virginia. In the end, Lee's punishment, and perhaps even the court-martial itself, seemed to be less about Lee's performance at Monmouth and more about his unwillingness to show deference to the commander-in-chief. Washington was still working to solidify his command following the Conway Cabal. He needed to establish his authority over the army. He was still contending with General Horatio Gates. General Conway had only resigned a few months earlier. Washington could not add Lee to his list of opponents among his top commanders. Following the suspension, Lee did not learn his lesson. He continued to try to justify his actions by bad-mouthing Congress and Washington. He published his defenses in the newspapers, and these caused great offense to a number of other officers. Washington's aide, Colonel John Lawrence, challenged Lee to a duel for the attack on the commander-in-chief. The two men fought a duel on Christmas Eve, 1778, with Colonel Alexander Hamilton serving as Lawrence's second. Lawrence wounded Lee on the first shot. Lee said that the wound was minor and called for a second round of firing. However, the seconds at the duel managed to calm tensions and ended the duel after the first round of shooting. 
Lee also nearly got into duels with Generals Wilhelm von Steuben and Anthony Wayne. Lee, however, managed to calm tempers with those two men and avoided appearing on the field of honor with either of them. Lee even challenged a member of the Continental Congress, Charles Drayton of South Carolina, to a duel. The two men had a bad history, and Drayton had repeated the accusations made against Lee at the court-martial. Drayton, however, demurred and did not accept Lee's challenge. Despite the duels and other criticisms, General Lee continued to write, publicly attacking Washington and other leaders during his one-year suspension. A year later, as his suspension was coming to an end, Congress proposed terminating Lee's services permanently. The motion was close, but failed, meaning that Lee would return to service. Lee, however, heard about the motion and dashed off an angry letter to Congress, including an offer to resign. A few days later, Lee thought better of this angry letter and wrote back saying that he had been intemperate and wished not to resign. The letters, however, convinced Congress that Lee had not learned his lesson and would never show proper respect for Washington or Congress. The delegates voted to accept Lee's resignation and terminate his services in the Continental Army. When the Army concluded the Lee court-martial, it turned its attention to two other major generals who were still facing judgment. The loss of Fort Ticonderoga a year earlier without a shot fired had resulted in great national indignation, particularly in Congress, for the military commanders in charge at the fort. Arthur Sinclair, who had been in command at the fort and who had ordered the retreat, said at the time he had to choose between saving his reputation and saving his army. He chose the latter, but then had to deal with the blow to his reputation. Philip Schuyler, who had been in overall command of the Northern Army at the time, also had to answer for the command decisions that led to the loss of Fort Ticonderoga. In August 1778, a court-martial took up the matter of Sinclair. The tone of this court-martial seemed to be very different than that of General Lee's. One of the big differences was that Sinclair still had General Washington's support. Up until the loss of Fort Ticonderoga in 1777, Sinclair had been an up-and-coming officer in the Continental Army. He had served as a captain in the British regulars during the French and Indian War, and had been an early supporter of the Patriot cause in Pennsylvania. Sinclair did not receive a commission in the Continental Army until August of 1776, when Pennsylvania began to send significant numbers of soldiers into the Continental Army, which was by that time in New York. His leadership in the New York campaign and the Princeton campaign led to his promotion to Major General less than a year later. His independent command at Fort Ticonderoga in mid-June 1777 was a sign of confidence in this up-and-coming officer. Three weeks later, Sinclair believed his military career was over as his men marched away from the fort, escaping the British attackers under General Burgoyne. Since that time, Sinclair did not receive another command. He remained with Washington at Valley Forge, advising the commanders and serving as a staff officer. He remained under a cloud for his actions at Ticonderoga. Unlike the Lee court-martial, which began just a few days after the Battle of Monmouth, Sinclair's fate lingered with Congress for a year. In August 1777, 
Congress formed a committee to investigate what had happened. The committee reported in February 1778. Then there were a series of other delays so that Congress did not direct Washington to conduct the court-martials until June of 1778. By that time, Washington was in the middle of planning his attack on the British, who were retreating from Philadelphia. Following the Battle of Monmouth, Washington wanted to get the Lee trial done first before finally giving the court time to begin Sinclair's trial in August. General Benjamin Lincoln presided over the court-martial, which took place in New York. At the time, the Continentals were besieging British-occupied New York City. Lincoln had his appointment as a major general on the same day as General Sinclair. He had been among the officers who took command of the Northern Army under General Gates following the loss of Ticonderoga. Four brigadiers and eight colonels also served on the court. John Lawrence, the same officer who had prosecuted Lee, also prosecuted Sinclair. Sinclair faced five charges. Neglect of duty, cowardice, treachery, inattention to the progress of the enemy, and shamefully abandoning his posts at Ticonderoga and Mount Independence. The court spent several weeks evaluating the evidence and taking testimony from witnesses. In the end, the court found Sinclair had acted properly. Sinclair had only arrived at Fort Ticonderoga weeks before the British attack. The fort's defenses were not capable of mounting a defense. Any attempt to do so would have resulted in the destruction or capture of the garrison. Sinclair had acted properly in ordering a retreat and saving most of the army. Those men would be needed to win the battles at Saratoga a few months later. The court unanimously acquitted Sinclair on all counts and with the highest honor. Despite the acquittal, though, Sinclair would never receive another independent command during the war. He would continue to serve as a staff aide to General Washington. Having completed the Sinclair court-martial, the army next turned its attention to General Philip Schuyler. Like Sinclair, Congress had investigated Schuyler for his role in the loss of Fort Ticonderoga, and after an extensive investigation, instructed Washington to hold a court-martial. On October 1, 1778, the court began its hearing against Schuyler. Once again, Benjamin Lincoln presided. In fact, the members of the court-martial were the same as those who sat for General Sinclair with the replacement of just one colonel. John Lawrence also continued in his role as prosecutor. The court only preferred one charge against Schuyler, neglect of duty for failure to be present at Fort Ticonderoga in the weeks leading up to the surrender. Schuyler's defense was a pretty simple one. He wasn't present at Fort Ticonderoga, not because of neglect of duty, but because he was commander of the entire northern department. He had left Major General Sinclair in charge of Fort Ticonderoga, while Schuyler worked in Albany to get reinforcements, find supplies, negotiate to keep local Indian tribes out of the fighting, and a host of other duties. The trial only lasted three days, after which time the court found Schuyler not guilty and acquitted him with highest honor. The court sent the findings of both Sinclair and Schuyler to the Continental Congress in Philadelphia, and Congress confirmed both acquittals. Unlike Sinclair, Schuyler was not content to remain with the army. With the suspension of Charles Lee, Schuyler became the number two commander in the army 
with only Washington as his superior. Schuyler, however, had never really been a military man. Although he had been a colonel in the New York militia and had served in the French and Indian War, his appointment as one of the Continental Army's first major generals was primarily due to the need to have a prominent New York leader represented in the Army. Schuyler's strengths lay in politics and diplomacy, not in military command. In December 1778, after Congress confirmed his acquittal, Schuyler submitted his resignation. Congress actually rejected that offer of resignation. Several delegates, as well as General Washington personally, encouraged Schuyler to remain in the Army. Washington offered to return command of the Northern Department to Schuyler as a show of support for his abilities. But Schuyler was insistent. Finally, in April of 1779, Congress accepted his resignation. While charges were still pending against him, New York had voted to send Schuyler back to the Continental Congress, where he had served prior to his military appointment. Following his acquittal, Schuyler accepted his seat and traveled to Philadelphia to serve as a delegate. Around this same time, the Army lost another major general, Thomas Mifflin, who had been caught up in the Conway Cabal, decided to resign. Mifflin had been quartermaster and then served on the board of war with General Gates in his attempt to usurp command authority from Washington. Mifflin faced accusations of embezzlement from his time as quartermaster. He demanded a formal inquiry, but never got one. Finally, in February 1779, Mifflin also resigned his commission. Unlike Schuyler, he would continue with his career in politics. Now, next week, we're going to look at another campaign, one that actually leads to the resignation of yet another major general, as John Sullivan leads the continental effort to retake Rhode Island. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to Train Ants, George Davis, Lewis White, and Robert Hunter for support of this podcast at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon. I also want to thank Christopher Eaker and Pete Waddell, aka Baron DeKalb, for joining the Privy Council last month, and to Brian Short for joining as a standard bearer. All of you will be receiving your first flag magnet this month. Also, thanks to Patreon Minutemen. Stephen Lowe, Marilyn Robarts, and Chris Busto, 
and Sons of Liberty Edward Franks and Robert Cook, who all joined last month. And, of course, thanks to everyone who supports this podcast for as little as $2 a month on Patreon. Your support really helps to cover my costs and makes it possible for this podcast to continue. Now, this week, we covered the court-martials of three major generals and the resignation of a fourth, all of which took place within a few weeks of each other. With the conclusion of these events, three of the four major generals who were appointed at the beginning of the war were now gone. The fourth, Israel Putnam of Connecticut, had already kind of been pushed aside to inconsequential duty, and he would suffer a stroke later in 1779, which would completely take him out of service as well. Now that left General Horatio Gates as the number two commander in the Continental Army, behind only George Washington. And since he and Washington didn't really get along after the Conway cabal, or perhaps even before it, it was an uncomfortable situation. In fact, of the 11 major generals who were commissioned before 1777, only Gates, William Heath, and Nathaniel Green would still be serving at the end of the war. Gates, of course, would later get a southern command and fight the Battle of Camden later in the war, only to embarrass himself terribly. Yeah, we'll get to that at some point. General Heath, by 1779, had pretty much been banished to logistical and support roles and would not participate in combat again. So, of that most senior group of major generals, only Nathaniel Green would finish the war with a reputation as a good general. All this, I guess, shouldn't be terribly surprising. The Continental Army, especially at the beginning, had to rely on largely untested top commanders. Some would prove their worth, but of course many would not. There were inevitably going to be changes as different generals proved their value. Removing generals who did not make the grade was not always easy. Many had received their appointments for political reasons, and removing them could create political problems. We see some, like Schuyler, willing to resign and go back to political positions where they felt their skills were better suited. Others, like Sinclair, accepted more administrative roles and did what they could to support the cause in the army without holding a field command. Still others had to be pushed out of the army. Lee, of course, was probably the most prominent, but not the only one. I'm surprised Gates never got pushed out, especially after Camden. Uh, Adam Stephen was rather unceremoniously dumped. And still other generals, like General Mifflin, De Fermoy, or Conway, resigned after the support of their commander and Congress had pretty much dried up. Now, of course, I'm just talking about generals. These sorts of things happen all through the officer corps. War tests leaders. Some pass the tests and others don't. The army must act accordingly in order to keep the war effort on track. Now, court-martials were an important tool in all of this, they not only provided a way to remove an officer who had lost the faith of the commanders and who would not resign, but they also provided a forum for the officers to justify their actions and often explain why a loss on the battlefield was the only option or the best option given the circumstances. Because of General Lee's rank and the leadership implications, his court-martial was probably the most notable and consequential court-martial of the war. General Lee, as I've mentioned before, would retire to his plantation in Virginia and would die rather suddenly in Philadelphia before a final peace treaty with Britain was signed. 
There are lots of great biographies about Lee, but if you want to read a book specifically about his court-martial, my book recommendation this week is George Washington's Nemesis, The Outrageous Treason and Unfair Court-Martial of Major General Charles Lee During the Revolutionary War by Christian McBurney. If this book sounds familiar to you, it's because I interviewed the author shortly after the release of this book last year. I don't make book recommendations as such during special interview episodes, so I guess this one was still available to make a recommendation of the week. The book focuses on Lee's court-martial. As you might guess from the title, it makes the argument that Lee was not really guilty of the charges against him. Now, McBurney is a lawyer from Washington, D.C. He's also a member of the American Revolution Roundtable, and has written many other books and articles about the Revolution. I've recommended one of his earlier books, Kidnapping the Enemy, about the capture of British General Richard Prescott, who was used to exchange for General Lee. In the book George Washington's Nemesis, McBurney gives a brief background on Lee, looks at some of his, shall we say, questionable activities while a prisoner of war, and then his performance at Monmouth, and the ensuing court-martial. The book is just under 300 pages, not counting notes and index, plenty of room to dive deeply into these issues. If you haven't gotten it yet, I heartily recommend it. If you want to read more details about any of the three court-martials that I discussed this week, there are also links to more detailed records about each of the cases on my blog episode for this week. If you just go to blog.amrevpodcast.com, and look up this week's episode, the further reading section at the bottom contains a list of all these links. My online recommendation, though, is going to a biography of one of the other generals I discussed this week. It's called The Life of General Philip Schuyler, 1733-1804, by Bayard Tuckerman. General Schuyler is a largely overlooked general who has been getting some attention lately due to his relationship with Alexander Hamilton. Schuyler's daughter, of course, married Hamilton. The author of the Schuyler biography, Bayard Tuckerman, wrote a number of historical books, including one about Lafayette. Tuckerman was a lecturer at Princeton University. His biography about General Schuyler, I think, was his last major work, published in 1903. Because it is in the public domain, it is available for free online at archive.org as a downloadable ebook. As always, you can search for Schuyler on archive.org to find it, or just use the direct link on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.